Good morning. What a pleasure it is to be here with you this morning. It is still morning, yes. Okay, I'm used to the third service, sorry. Um, perhaps the most famous wall built in modern times is the Berlin Wall. Anybody ever been there? One, two, all right. Built in 1961 to separate a city called Berlin, right down the middle, to separate east from the west. 20 plus feet tall, it was actually two walls. If you've been there, you know there's two walls. Two walls that were separating a space of ground that was often called the Death Strip. The Death Strip was filled with thousands of of watchtowers and guard dogs and and tripwire machine guns and all the rest, all in an effort to keep people out and in their separate spaces. Formerly, formerly, the wall was built by the Soviet Union to keep out all of the Western fascists from entering into Soviet-controlled East Berlin and subverting the socialist regime. Unofficially, and more practically, that wall was built to deter people from crossing from East into West. But for 28 years, that wall stood as a monument to the ideological differences between East and West. But on November 9th, 1989, that wall came down to the celebration of millions of people both in Germany and around the world. We're in a sermon series called Divided. As we look at how we as children of God, followers of Jesus Christ, can live in a world that is certainly divided. Divided along every imaginable line. Political, philosophical, religious, and whatever other category you want to add, we are a divided people, a divided culture, a divided world. But that's not unfortunately just true on the outside. It's true, unfortunately, even within the church. There's division here, separation here, ideological differences here. So the question we have to ask is, how do we as followers of Jesus Christ, who live under the lordship of Jesus Christ, who are called to live together in unity, how do we do that in the midst of all of the division? How do we live faithful lives in the midst of the differences that we have amongst ourselves? I'm really glad you asked. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians. We're in a series there in 1 Corinthians, and we're looking at this letter written by the Apostle Paul. Let me give you, by way of background, if you may have missed it last week, Paul is writing to a city, a church that's in the city of Corinth. Corinth was located on a a little strip of land called an isthmus. Anybody remember what an isthmus is from grade school? It's a little strip of land that connects two larger Uh, land masses, in this case, northern Greece with southern Greece. This isthmus was three and a half miles wide. And as a result of where it was, it separated the Aegean Sea from the Adriatic Sea. And so as a result, it had two ports, one on its east side and one on its west. And so merchants would come by ship to one of the ports, and they would offload the goods of of, of their boat and have it transported three and a half miles across the isthmus and loaded onto another boat and the merchants would go on their merry way. Or if your ship was light enough, they would pick up that boat out of the water, put it on rollers and roll you across that isthmus, 
drop you off on the other side and off you'd go. And so as a result of this little land bridge, this isthmus, Corinth became a, a hub of, of commerce and, and, and mercantile and merchandise and merchants and sailors and, and people and travelers and everybody went to Corinth. Corinth was a, a hustle and bustle of, of people and merchandise and culture and food and fashion and everything. It was a cosmopolitan city. But with a city like that comes all of the other things that uh, come with a city like that, and that's the seedier side, the sexual immorality, the perversion, the drunkenness, the debauchery, and all the rest. The Apostle Paul came to this city on his second missionary journey, and he came and he preached the gospel and People came to Christ and he established a church and he spent 18 months in this church, in this city, teaching and preaching the gospel and God's plan for salvation. And it is to this city, this church in this city that Paul writes this letter, 1 Corinthians. And his hope and his attempt is as he writes this letter to communicate the riches that this church, that these believers have in Jesus Christ. And his hope is that as he communicates the riches that they have, that they will understand that they are a community established by God in the midst of a diverse and divided culture to bring glory to God. And so as we look at chapter 1, verses 4 through 9 this morning, what we're going to learn is that God has given us everything we need in Jesus Christ. God has given us everything we need in Jesus Christ. I want to share with you two realities that the Apostle Paul gives us in these verses, two realities that will help us live in light of that truth that God has given us everything we need in Christ. And the first is that in Christ, we are rich in the right things. Verse number four is where I'm starting. Paul writes, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I find it very surprising that the Apostle Paul starts this letter off with thanksgiving. If you know anything about this letter and you know anything about what's going on in this church, you know that this is a messed up church. Anybody know this? This is a yes, and this is a no. This, okay. It's been a while since I've been here. We, we do interactive church, right? This is a messed up church, right? This is a church that, that has sexual immorality going on, and they're, they're proud of it. This is a church that is brutal with each other. They're dragging people to court over the trivialest of things. This is a church that is condoning in their midst sin that the unbelieving pagan world is in shock over. This is a church that is abusing the gifts of God, and this is a messed up church, and yet in the midst of all that mess, and in a letter that's written to correct that mess and to deal with the abuse, Paul starts off with thanks. I thank God. Why? Well, not for, not for the way the Corinthians are, are living. Certainly not for the way they're behaving. What does he thank God for? The grace of God. Amen? The grace of God. How many of you are thankful for the grace of God? Amen. Yeah, well, yeah, you clap. That's good. It's good. 
Grace means unmerited. You're not sure? What was that? Oh, amen. Unmerited divine assistance. We'll go with it. Unmerited divine assistance. I used to think it was just favor. I like that definition. But by definition, grace is not something we can earn. Because if it's something we can earn, then it's no longer called grace. It's grace because it's free. It's grace because it's a gift. It's a gift of God given to us without strings attached. It's completely free without anything on our part. And that's why we call it grace. Philip Yancey tells a story of a a teenager who lived in rebellion against her parents. Rebellion that escalated one after the other till finally she ran away from home and ran to Detroit and became a drug-addicted prostitute living on the streets. Months go by, and she's living this horrible lifestyle, and she sees her picture on the milk carton. But she doesn't bother to call home to tell them that she's still alive. Years go by, and she finally gets sick, violently sick, so sick that her pimp throws her out on the street. And she tries to figure out how to make life work, looks for alternatives. No one is willing to take her in. Exhausted, devastated, sick, alone, she makes a phone call home. No one picks up, but the answering machine does. She leaves a message. She figures she's got nothing else to lose. She goes to the Greyhound station in Detroit, buys a one-way ticket, gets on that bus, and heads home. She figures she can scrounge up a ride to get to her old house. But no sooner does she step off that Greyhound bus, there's 40 people waiting for her. Her aunts and uncles and cousins and brothers and sisters and grandparents and her parents, they're all waiting there. They've got party hats on. They're carrying a big, huge sign that says, Welcome home. And no sooner can she get the words, I'm sorry, out of her mouth, her father puts his hand around her and says, Hush, sweetheart. We'll talk later. We got to get you home. There's a banquet waiting for you. Did she deserve that? That's not a trick question. Okay. Did she deserve that? No. That's why we call it grace. Friends, you and I didn't deserve it either, did we? We don't deserve grace either. We didn't deserve the fact that Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth. He died on a cross cruelly beaten, broken, bruised, bloodied on a cross so that you and I might have a relationship with God that we didn't deserve. We didn't deserve. We don't deserve it. That's why we call it grace. Free gift of God to those of us who are in Jesus Christ. And Paul tells these Corinthian Christians who are messed up that he thanks God for the grace of God in their lives. Notice as he goes on to tell them that That grace of God that adds them to the family of God allows them to be enriched in every way. Enriched. They're rich. They're rich in the gifts of God that have been given to this church. And the Apostle Paul specifically uses two giftings, two categories called speech and knowledge. In essence, he's saying God has given everything that this church needs to thrive, to build each other up to bless themselves and their community. Everything that this church needs is with the people of this church. The Corinthians have it. They have been blessed and enriched 
with every spiritual blessing. Specifically, speech and knowledge. Speech comes from the Greek word logos. And it's a, you know, in the, it's a Greco-Roman culture. You've got Aristotle and Plato and all of these philosophers who are orators. And so orating and, and rhetoric were highly prized skills in that community, in that time. But this church, this church has the ability to communicate. This church has the gifts of oratory and rhetoric, and they can speak the gospel. They can preach the gospel. They can teach the gospel. And they have giftings from the Spirit of God that empower that speech for divine purposes. Not just that, they have knowledge. Knowledge coming from the Greek word gnosis, meaning, well, knowledge. They have the information. The Apostle Paul lived with this church for 18 months. And so this church has a great foundation, a great understanding of God's plan for redemptive history and God's plan through Jesus Christ. This church knows, and God has supercharged their knowledge so that they can defend the gospel in a culture that is so divided and so pagan. Now, let me be clear. We're not talking about natural gifts. We're not talking about skill. We're talking about spirit-inspired, spirit-empowered gifts. So, you saw Josh and Kara and the worship team up here. How many of you are blessed by them? Amen? Kara, there you are. And we are blessed. Some of that is natural gifting. But when they came to Jesus Christ by faith, the Spirit of God came into their lives and supercharged that skill so that they can be a blessing to this church, to this community. Some of us have a gifting that we receive when we come to Christ that we didn't have before Christ. All of a sudden, we can teach, and we can preach, or we can sing, or we can mentor, or we can disciple, or we can love, or we can do a whole host of things that we never knew we could do, but we now can do it because the Spirit of God dwells in us, and He empowers that into a spiritual gift for the benefit of the church. So here's the question. Do you know your spiritual gift? Every single person who has ever come to Jesus Christ has at least one spiritual gift. I'm going to go on a limb. Ready? Listen to this. I'm willing to go on a limb and say all of you have at least more than one. So do you know yours? Do you? If you don't, second Sunday of every month, we have what's called the Next Steps class. One of the things that they talk about in the next steps class are spiritual gifts. There's a spiritual gift assessment that's given, and you can take an assessment that tells you what your spiritual gifts may be. And they will guide you and talk to you and explain to you what those gifts are and what they could be and how those gifts can be used for the glory of God in this church. Friends, you're just like the Corinthian church. Woodside Royal Oak has every spiritual gift necessary for this campus to glorify God and to bless each other. You're here. Everybody here. This is the family of God, and you've been blessed with every spiritual gift. Are you using your gift? Are you? You got to know it. You got to know it. And Once you know it, the question is, do you use it? Because if you don't, 
there is something or someone in this church, this campus, that is being neglected because you're unwilling or unable to use the gift God has given you. I didn't say those things. That's, that's what the Word of God says. So friends, we are gifted with every spiritual gift and blessing in Jesus Christ. Just like the Corinthian church. And the Apostle Paul thanks God for the grace of God in their lives and for every gift that has been given to the members of this church who are using it. Yes, they're abusing it. They're using it as an occasion for sin and for pride and all of the rest. And and, and Paul's going to deal with it in chapters 12 through 14. But friends, we have been given gifts. Our job is to use it to build up of the church and for the glory of God. If you skip down to verse number 7, you find that Paul tells them that we are eagerly awaiting the coming of Jesus Christ in glory. That every child of God who has put his faith or her faith in Jesus Christ, our hope, our prayer, our dream is that Jesus Christ will come and he will come soon. He could come right now. Nope, didn't happen. All right, like... That's the kind of expectation you, sh- no, that you should have. Like you should be living and I should be living as if though that moment is right now. You understand what I'm saying? But while we wait for that day, we live obedient to his word. We live obedient, living, using the gifts and the gifting that God has given to each one of us to bless the people of this campus for the glory of God and to further his kingdom. We have all been given every good gift in Jesus Christ. But not only are we rich in the right things, I want you to know secondly, as we come to verses 8 and 9, that we are safe in the right relationships. Verse 8 says, Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You notice in verse 8, there's the word sustain. The word sustain is the same word that's translated confirm in verse number 6. That word confirm or sustain has the idea of a legal guarantee. Now, this is not a guarantee by a used car salesman or a, or, a, or a real estate agent trying to sell you oceanfront property in Tennessee. Okay, That's not that kind of guarantee. This is a guarantee by God. It's a legal guarantee that says that this will happen. And what's the guarantee? Guarantee is that God, it's not about what the Corinthians have done. It's not how the Corinthians are behaving. It's about who God is and what God has done and what God will do. Did you notice what that is? The guarantee is that God will present us guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word guiltless can also be translated blameless. How about applying that word to your life? Blameless Abe. Ugh. I mean, that's pretty weighty. Like, I don't see myself that way. I'm as guilty as they come. I messed up today. I messed up yesterday. I messed up the day before. I know I'm going to mess up tomorrow. I sometimes wonder, just to be transparent, I wonder if I'll make it. I'll just be honest with you. I keep coming to God every day and say, Lord, it's just me again. I've done it again. Would you forgive me again? And you know what the deal is? It isn't about me. 
You understand that? It isn't about me. It's about him and what he is doing. Because he called, he redeemed, he sustains, he will do the work in me. And at the end of the days when Jesus Christ Christ comes back, it isn't me who counts myself blameless, is it? God sees me blameless. Why? Because when God looks at me, he sees who? Jesus Christ. That's who he sees. It's not my righteousness. My righteousness is like filthy rags. It's not my works. My works are no good. But it's because of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. When God looks at me, he sees Jesus in me. And I am so thankful for that. How about you? Hallelujah. You will be presented faultless, guiltless, blameless on that day because of who God is. It's a guarantee you can take it to the bank. That's how good God is. It's how good God is. It's not about what we can do. It's about what God has done in our lives. Dick Hoyt is a triathlete and a marathon runner. Dick Hoyt has completed 32 Boston marathons. But Dick Hoyt didn't run 32 Boston marathons by himself. He ran 32 Boston marathons pushing his son in a wheelchair. You see, his son, Rick has cerebral palsy. His son doesn't have the use of his limbs and is confined to a wheelchair. And 32 times, Dick and his son Rick have run the Boston Marathon and have crossed the Boston Marathon finish line. And Rick has 32 medals. Why? Because his dad pushed him through. Last year, March of 2021, Dick Hoyt passed away. And his son said these words about his father, my father was my motor. In other words, the only way I made it to the finish line is because he pushed me all the way. Friends, it's not because you and I can do it. It's not because you and I can get to the finish line. It's because he's pushing us all the way. Amen? That he's got us. He's carrying us. We're in the palm of his hand. And he will carry us all the way through. And that's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 8, I am confident in whom I believe that he will complete that which he has started and bring it to completion on that day. Amen? Present us guiltless, faultless, blameless. Then you come to verse number 9. Verse number nine has three beautiful words, three amazing words. God is, wow. Can we try that again? I mean, do you mind? God is, do you believe that, church? If you believe that, that means you don't have to worry. You don't have to fear. If you really believe that God is faithful, he's completely trustworthy. He is a person who never fails, never forgets, never changes. There's no one who can challenge him, no one who can unseat him. There is no one like our God because he is faithful. You know that because you woke up this morning, amen? You experienced his faithfulness today. Day after day, we experience his faithfulness. The fact that the sun comes up in the east and sets in the west is because of his faithfulness. The reason you're able to come here is because of his faithfulness. The reason we have the freedom to worship is because of his faithfulness. The reason you have the blessings you and I do is because of his faithfulness. We have his faithfulness. We can bank on it. We can trust him because whenever he says something, he'll do it because he's the only one who can. When he has promised to present you faultless and blameless, 
We can trust him because he is faithful. He is faithful. But I want you to notice at the end of verse 9 carefully what Paul says is the outcome of God's faithfulness. Paul says that we are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. For as bad as these Corinthian believers were behaving and acting, for as bad as they were abusing the gifts of God, these believers were still living in fellowship with one another. If you remember, this church is a weird church. Because you have single ladies who are part of this church. Ladies who used to be prostitutes. You've got people in this church who are ex-drunkards. Who heard the gospel and gave their life to Jesus Christ. And that addiction was broken. You have merchants who heard the gospel who are in this church. You have sex slaves who heard the gospel, been freed from that, are in this church. You've got people who are, or who are from every ethnic background because of the cosmopolitan nature of the city in this church. You have free and slave masters and everybody else. You've got Jews and Gentiles and everything in between in this church. Can you picture it? It's a messed up church. <laughs> Got all kinds of division, all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of racial issues going on in this church. And yet, Paul says, they've been added to the church in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm willing to bet that you don't think of community and fellowship like they did back then. You see, for them, when they accepted Jesus Christ... Many of them were kicked out of their homes and were homeless. Many of them lost their jobs because they no longer had allegiance to their master or to Caesar or whoever. Many of them were persecuted for the sake of Jesus Christ because of their faith. And here you have a group of people who were kicked out of families and kicked out of work and kicked out of neighborhoods and now had to depend on each other for their survival and for the glory of God. You see, you and I, when we think of community, we don't think of it this way. And the part of the reason we don't think of it this way is because this kind of community that God is calling us to, the kind of fellowship that God is calling us into, is very antithetical, very counter to the way we as Americans process things. In fact, let me say it this way, perhaps a little harsh. The American value system is counter to the gospel. Oh, I know, I probably ruffled some feathers. Forgive me. Let me explain just one. One explanation based on this passage. One crucial element of the American ethic is individualism. Would you agree? Individualism says, and by the way, we live in a hyper-individualistic state, but let's forget about that for just a minute. Individual, American individualism says, I can do it. I got this. I don't need your help. I can do it. I've got the strength. I've got the skill. I can do it. I got this. Would you agree? Last year at the end of the year, my previous boss <coughs> in my year-end performance review told me, Abe, you don't, you don't market yourself well. You don't promote yourself well. I said, really? What do I need to do? He said, you need to make sure your executives know that you need and deserve a promotion. You need to put yourself out there. You need to market yourself. Okay, that's the American mindset. Would you agree? Guess what? That's not the gospel. That is very opposite of the gospel. You see, when God does his 
redemptive work in the world. He does not use me's, he uses we's. Can I say that again? When God does his redemptive work in the world, he does not use me's, he uses we's. You see, we, when God wants to do his redemptive work in the world, we see in the Old Testament in the ancient times, in Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man named Abraham and promises him, I'm going to make you a great nation, and through you, I'm going to bless the world. You remember that? And when, so when God is trying to make his glory and his fame known and progress his redemptive plan in the world, he uses the nation of Israel as his community for which God is going to move his redemptive plan forward. And that redemptive plan, that promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12 is ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, the God-man, comes from heaven to earth. He dies on a cross. He makes a way so that everyone around the world who believes in him can come to know Jesus Christ by faith and have a relationship with God and be destined for heaven. Amen? But with that new covenant and that fulfillment of promise comes a change. No longer is God just using the nation of Israel. Now God is bringing people from every tribe and nation and tongue and people and bringing them together into a new community called the church. You see, it's no longer me as an individual. I as an individual broke a relationship with God through my sin. God saved me, but that salvation makes me right with God, yes, but it also makes me right with my brothers and sisters. That's communion. That's what we just celebrated. That there's the vertical component of the cross that makes me right with God, but there's the horizontal component that makes me right with my brothers and sisters in Christ. So when God saved you and when God saved me, he added us into a family, a family where God is the father and we are his children and we have brothers and sisters who are in Christ and that this family relationship, this fellowship, this community takes precedence and priority over everything else. Do you see it that way, church? So here's the question. When you think of church... Do we think of it as an American consumer who thinks of the church as another institution that we belong to? Or do we see church the way God sees church? As the overriding family into which sinners have been saved by grace and placed through the Spirit of God working in their lives. That this family, this fellowship, this community is the family that trumps all other families. Because nothing is stronger than the blood of Jesus. Amen? Timothy, always mess up his name. Give me a second. Timothy Paul Jones. Timothy Paul Jones writes the story of the time that he adopted his second daughter. His second daughter had been previously adopted by another family. That other family, for some reason, never was able to integrate this adopted daughter into their family. Whenever this family would go on vacation to, say, like Disney World, they would take their biological children to Disney World. But this little girl, they would always leave behind with someone else. So this little girl always grew up thinking that she had done something wrong to not go to Disney World. And problem after problem led to the that adoption being dissolved, and that led Tim and his wife to be able to adopt this little girl. 
So they brought her home and they integrated her into the family and they came to, found, came to find out that she's never been to Disney World. And so they made plans and they said, we're going to Disney World and, and everybody was excited and you would think that going to Disney World would have made her happy and ecstatic and wonderful and over the moon and yet exact opposite happened. She devolved into a downward spiral of devilish behavior. She started to steal and draw on the walls and cuss, and swear, and a host of things that just went bad to worse. Tim confronted her, and sat her down, and tried to explain to her, dear, you're our daughter, we're going to Disney World, you don't have to act like this, you don't have to act up, we're going to take you, you don't, you don't have to worry. He did everything he could to conf- comfort her, and to help explain her place in the family, but it didn't do any good, and she just got worse. One thing led to another. Even on the drive down to Disney World, she was acting up, rebelling. But they went, just as they had promised. But after the first full day at Disney World, something beautiful happened. And here's how Tim writes it in his book. He says, In our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy at times. But her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, held her, and asked her, So how was your first day at Disney World? She closed her eyes and snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. After a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly and said, Daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. It isn't because I was good. It's because I am yours. Friends, that's why they call it grace. You and I don't deserve it. Because you and I have messed up. We've behaved wrong. We've sinned and come short of the glory of God. But even in spite of the mess of our lives, God's grace has intercepted us. And we are who we are because of the grace of God. Amen? It's not because we're good. It's because of what he has done and because of his grace working in our lives. And he has taken us out of the sin block, out of the slave block of sin. And he has brought us into communion with God the Father and with brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Friend, perhaps you're here this morning and you don't know that. Jesus as Savior. Perhaps you're here and this church isn't family. Just another place to come to on Sunday morning. Can I introduce Jesus to you? Jesus loves you. You may not be very lovable today, but know that he loves you. You may have sinned badly. You may think that all the things you've done in your life, there's no one who could love you, no one who can save you, but can I just tell you, you're not beyond the grace of God. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross can forgive you, can save you, can add you into the family of God, give you a relationship with God the Father that you and I don't deserve, and set you up and ready for heaven, all because of grace. Won't you come to know him today? Won't you accept him by faith today? What starts by saying, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. Sorry for the things I've done. Would you forgive me? And I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior I pray that you'd come and be Lord of my life. And the Bible says when you do that, your sins will be forgiven and you'll be added into the family of God. You will be saved and ready.
to meet Jesus and go to heaven with him. Friends, for those of you who are brothers and sisters, can I remind us that this is family? Stronger than the blood ties that we call normally family, the blood of Jesus has united us into a new community called the church. So do me a favor, look to your right and look to your left. Go ahead, it's okay. You don't have to look at me. I'm not much to look at. Look around. Maybe look across the room. Maybe you need to see a face today. Perhaps there's somebody here you need to invite for coffee or maybe invite for dinner. I'm available, you're always welcome. But look around. There are people here you don't know, but your family. It's time you got to know them. It's time you got to know their name. It's time you got to pray for them. It's time that you started engaging with them because this family trumps all other families. Amen? Because that's the kind of community God is building through grace and through the gift of God. If you want prayer and you want to know Jesus Christ, come up after the service. There will be people at the front who would love to pray for you. I'll be in the foyer. I'd love to introduce Jesus to you. But know that we are family. And no matter how messed up we may be, and we are messed up, God's grace will present us faultless and guiltless on that day. Amen? Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the reminder that you have saved us, not because of what we have done, but because of your love and your grace, you have saved us. You have redeemed us, and you have called us and saved us and sealed us and sanctified us, and you will present us faultless on that day when Jesus comes to take us home. Thank you for that wonderful reminder. Father, if there is anyone here who doesn't know you today, may today be the day that they come to know you by faith, that they would bend the knee at the cross and accept you as their Lord and Savior. Continue to work in their hearts to convince them of who you are, to convict them of their sin, to show them the completeness of the work that you provided for them on Calvary. And may they be added into this family, the family built together by Jesus Christ, empowered by the Spirit of God with gifts to build each other up, to encourage one another, to love one another, to help one another, to be with one another. And may we be that kind of people, that kind of people that show the world what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Thank you for all that you have done and all that you are going to do. Well, thank you for it. In Jesus' name and all God's people said,